Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast, another bonus one for you today. Uh, in this episode, I catch up with Sam Peters, who you may remember as the uh, the rugby writer for The Mail. He's just written an absolutely fascinating new book called Concussed, Sports Uncomfortable Truth. And uh, yeah, obviously with player welfare being such a big issue in rugby at the moment and something we talk about on the pod you know, regularly, uh, from a fan's perspective, it was just so insightful to get the uh, the opinions and uh, yeah, that informed knowledge of of someone who just knows it in so much detail, has researched it so much, has spoken to so many people, and and yeah, has written this this um, yeah this really really interesting book about um, uh, about brain injuries and uh, yeah, I you know if you enjoy this chat with him, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, then I think you'll definitely enjoy the book. So make sure you, you get yourself a copy of that. And uh, yeah, the, I think there'll be an audio book version out at some point as well. But uh, yeah, it's available now. So if, you, if you're interested in this kind of thing uh, within within rugby and uh, and within sport generally, then I, I guarantee that you will you will thoroughly enjoy it. So make sure you, you do get your hands on a copy of it. And yeah, while we're talking about such matters, you may remember earlier in the year, Alex Popham uh, came on the pod to talk about uh, the the cycling challenge um, that has been uh, organised for, for his charity Head for Change, and uh, our good friend Dan Killick will be will be taking part in that. So if you fancy supporting Dan, then um, then you can do that as well. And if you if you search for Head for Leon on Just Giving, we'll we'll stick out um, a link on uh, on Twitter as well. Um, but yeah, you can uh, you can support him. And uh, and obviously it's a it's an amazing charity that's does um, does a lot of work in in an area that I think I think we're all interested in to be honest. So yeah, if you get the opportunity, um, then head over there and mention that uh, mention that the attacking scrum sent you as well, um, and that yeah that you you're backing down to make it all the way to Leon. So uh, yeah, good luck to him and all the other boys. I think there's a couple of other Welsh internationals out there as well. I think I think Ian Goff's out there. And uh, and Tony Copsey as well. So we'll get 
we'll get Dan to, to send us some reports back from, from while he's out there. Uh, Geraint Thomas, of course, taking part as well. So, uh, yeah, there's um, yeah some pretty amazing names uh, taking place as part of that. I know we're kind of plugging quite a few things at the moment, but uh, generally it's, you know, as you'll know, this is a fan-run podcast. Um, so the stuff we're plugging is is mainly because we think you'll find it interesting. Um, you know, we're not paid loads of money to um, to do this. Uh, we're not kind of plugging an insurance brand or anything like that. It's all stuff that we think you'll be interested in. So the books and uh, the books and the interviews that we have and the, and the charity stuff, it's all stuff that we, we think you'll, um, you'll find interesting. So uh, yeah, uh, a big thank you to everyone who's, who's left us reviews lately and uh, a big thank you to everyone who's been listening throughout the World Cup. Uh, really enjoying making these pods at the moment. So uh, yeah, I hope you're enjoying listening to them too. Uh, right, enough from me. Uh, let's uh, let's get on with the show, and uh, you can listen to our chat with Sam Peters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm delighted to welcome to the Attacking Scrum podcast, Sam Peters, journalist and author of the brand new book, Concussed Sports Uncomfortable Truth. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Jed. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Yeah, it's great to have you on and um, obviously really, really keen to to talk about the book and of course the issues within it. Um, I've definitely fallen into this trap in the past of asking people why they why they chose to write about a specific subject and um I think in you know in your case that that would be even more dumb to to ask that. So what I'd really like to to start with is you know you covered rugby for a long time. When was it that you you know that you first started to see the the severity of the the player welfare issues that we were dealing with? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good question. Um so I played a lot of rugby growing up, a lot of rugby. It was very much part of my life. Um uh, and through school and, and university. Um, and I was very, very well aware that it, there was a significant injury risk of playing. I had three shoulder reconstructions before I was 22. Um, so I, I wasn't, um, averse or indeed, um, in any way anti the risk. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that, that risk and that, that adrenaline rush you got when you took the field, knowing that you could get injured. Um, but I was taken aback when I began covering the sport professionally around 2004 um, by the degree of um, and severity of uh, the injuries that were completely routine within the professional game and the number and the sort of the pressure being put on squads, how depleted the squads were um, uh, because of injuries. And as the more I sort of experienced and, and covered the sport the the worse the picture got for me um i began following the rfu premier rugby's concussion um sorry uh, injury audit um uh, which began around that time 
uh, and which had concussion figures which were spectacularly beneath what I believed them to be through reporting on the game and watching repeated concussions, players being allowed on the field to play on after they've been knocked out. And all the data was, to me, miles away from the real picture. Um, and that really concerned me that the the sport was being sort of lulled into a sense of security in a way by data that was misrepresentative of the reality um, and was being reported um, as as being far lower than was the, the truth, essentially. And I guess around 2012-13, um, uh, I covered the Lions tour to South Africa in 2013, covered the Pretoria second test match. Absolutely brutal game of rugby. And um, so that was 2009, of course. And then 2013, uh, covered the Lions tour to Australia and um, witnessed the George Smith case, which many of your listeners and viewers will remember. But um, going on at the same time as that was this massive case in the NFL, a legal case where ex-NFL players were being found to have dementia in their 40s and 50s. And um, I just began to conclude that I didn't see the difference in a rugby player getting knocked out and playing on or getting concussed and playing on and um, NFL players. And uh, so that was really the point in time around 2013. I started writing about concussion um, in rugby, which I knew was a problem, but um, I didn't realise at that point how big the problem actually was. Which is probably still, you know, you'd imagine a hell of a lot sooner than than the rest of us. Certainly, I think from a fan's perspective, you know, we kind of all reveled in the big hits and things like that. Um, what I find quite interesting is, you know, the way you've written before about how we've labelled brain injuries as concussions or even worse as kind of head knocks and, mm. and, and those kind of terminology. How unhelpful is it when we're trying to get across the, the severity of this issue that there's still that kind of games gone soft mentality lurking mm. around the game. I think that's incredibly unhelpful. Um, to suggest that the game of rugby has somehow gone soft is to defy reality. I mean, it's it's so far and away a tougher sport to play now than it ever has been. Um, you know, the guys are bigger, stronger, fitter, faster, more committed. They've got more, literally more to lose. More is at stake. Um, they're they're willingness to put their bodies on the line is awe-inspiring um, but also I firmly believe needs to be counted with some reasonable rational checks and balances um, and if you've studied the injury audits which I have um, it's absolutely undeniable that injuries have got more severe during the professional period of time um, Concussion rates have gone through the roof and are now standing as high as they've ever been. Um, and indeed, injuries in training are as bad as and severe as they've ever been, which is, you know, the kind of scandal in plain sight that's still going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, language is hugely important. I think the media's language has massively improved on this because our education's improved on it. Um, we've been educated um, collectively and... But to describe a, 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 a brain injury, um, a traumatic brain injury, as a as a ding or a or a head knock is is massively underplaying the reality of what it actually is. And I think the yeah the other thing that this whole kind of language around it and probably things that have 
changed or intensified since 2013 is the is the discussion around it on social media and, and how mm. that how kind of inflammatory that can be. Do you see that we've kind of ended up in something of a of a culture war around around discussing this as an issue? Yeah, I fear so, Jed. I do. I think it's you know it seems every conversation that we have now around difficult issues gets polarized very quickly. I think social media plays an incredibly important role in so many parts of our lives, but it's also, it is by its very nature polarizing. Um, you know, there's a lot of common ground still here between those of us who think that the sport still has a long way to go and those who have perhaps been more resistant, um, they're more uh, bound into the establishment and bound into the sort of older principles of rugby. But this is to me about a clear and present risk that has changed. The risk threat is higher and therefore you should respond accordingly. Any any strategist or planner will tell you that. Um, and to me, it was just really obvious, really, you know, a long time ago that the rug, professional rugby, I'm talking about here, the risk profile of professional rugby was radically higher than was being reported and radically higher than it was being presented um, and therefore, this isn't about kind of nanny statism or um, a soft underbelly of society or um, risk averse. It's not. It's not about that. This is literally about just responding to a greater threat, uh, a greater risk. Um, you know, as I say, I played rugby. I'm. I don't think anyone who knows me would describe me as a shrinking violet. Um, or, or indeed a snowflake, but although some may, I suppose, but um, who really cares about labels? The, the, the reality here is there's a bigger risk. We understand the risk better and we should um, act accordingly. In terms of acting accordingly, I'd like to talk about refereeing, particularly in relation to the tackle area. As usual, you know, it's, it's incredibly topical as we're recording this after the opening round of the Rugby World Cup. We've seen three incidents of head-on-head -head contact, uh, three different outcomes i suppose you know as fans we kind of complain about these inconsistencies in relation to the outcome of a result but i suppose that the real inconsistencies are that it's not helping to to change player behavior in, in relation mm. to, to head contact is it it doesn't appear to be at the moment although clearly some clubs and national teams have, have seem to be managing a lot better and England seemed to me although I haven't seen the data yet because I'm not sure if there's any good quality data to really analyze yet but it seems to me that England is struggling more than every other national team in this area clearly you know since that Farrell case you know back that up with Funapola back it up with Curry you know it does feel like the penny's taking much longer to drop for the players and therefore you have to assume for the coaches in England than it is elsewhere. And that's sort of perverse in a way because nominally the RFU would appear to be driving some of the change, although um, I use that term uh, appearing to be. Um, you know, there's a big decision for rugby to make. Either it's got to prioritise um, reducing uh, concussion, seriously prioritise it, or pay lip service to prioritising it when actually they've got no intention of really doing that. Um, and obviously the concussion rates continue to go up. Um, so that would suggest that the lower tackle trial may not be having the effect, um, partly because the players are taking so long to, to get, get round to it. And I guess I do have a lot of sympathy for referees and players because 
so much of this comes down on their shoulders. Um, and to me, there are some other people around rugby who are should be taking far more responsibility, be more accountable um, when it comes to this issue. And actually, the conversation really should be around how we reduce exposure on the big on the big big picture um, exposure to head contacts. And I touched upon the training issue earlier on. Why on earth contact training um, is still so clearly um, fraught with danger um, as it absolutely is, as the, the RFU's own data states or shows us that training ground injuries have gone up and up and up in recent um, years, partly due to Eddie Jones's influence, but also due to the fact it would appear, despite anecdotal evidence, um, that the guys are being thrashed as hard in during the week as they ever have been, um, which to me is just completely uh, crackers and, and could so easily be avoided. And I think you get a better spectacle on the weekend as well because the guys will be fresher. There'll be more of them available, the top top guys, and um, we get we get a better quality of game as well. So, you know, I'd be looking at that issue as just as clearly as I would be at, at the sort of head-high uh, tackle issue, which is obviously getting everyone into a serious uh, pickle at the moment, to say the very least. Yeah, and you talk about big picture there. I think it's impossible to look at any player welfare without examining the the commercial impact of the game. Obviously, mm-hmm. these um, these issues have been intensified in the professional era. It's still a relatively young sport professionally. Players get bigger as a result of being professional. The the collisions are bigger, and um, but likewise, to me, rugby doesn't seem to have a commercial model that they you know is even close to being able to manage. Um, player welfare because there is just a reliance on more and more games and you're absolutely right that the training aspect is is a huge part of that and coupled with the fact that the players are, are put through the the um put through the mill in terms of the sheer volume of games that they have to play throughout the course of a season yeah i mean i completely agree with everything you've just said jed um rugby especially in england i think uh, which is obviously where I've covered most of um, the rugby that I, I have over the years, although I've covered a lot of rugby in Wales and a fair bit in Ireland and Scotland and, and other parts of the world as well. But you look at the English model, um, which is the one I've focused on, and it was set up to fail in 96, basically, 95-96, when the RFU moratorium on professionalism um, was just sort of bizarrely kind of they just sort of sat on their hands and decided to wait and see what happened and of course what happened was that the clubs snapped up all the players at the very point other other more kind of forward thinking unions around the world signed up their players so they centrally contracted the guys but in England we've essentially set up premiership rugby premier rugby and the RFU to to be uh, fighting for the same commercial pie and that was completely ridiculous it was always going to fail um and then that was doubled down around 2003 when um Francis Barron and um uh Clive Sir Clive Woodward uh, looked to have made an agreement where the RFU could release enough funds to to um sign up their key players and uh, for reasons I've outlined in the book that that didn't happen and that was another significant moment for player welfare and commercial success in in England um but yeah the the commercial viability of professional rugby union lots of us have had its our doubts about it for a long time and I think probably now more than ever with a with a kind of global um and certainly 
UK-wide um, economic challenges that we've had for so long, it, uh, bound into COVID, obviously, and now and add in the concussion element as well. It's uh, it's extremely difficult to to pick a path forward for professional rugby union. Well, and that brings us back to something that you mentioned earlier on with regards to, to the NFL and the legal cases that, that there were then. I think that the figure was somewhere in the region of $760 million at the, at the time in terms of that settlement fee. I mean, what happens to rugby and its governing bodies if they have to, to you know, if they if they settle with, with players who brought legal, um, legal cases against them? I'm not, the honest answer, Jed, is I don't know. Um, and... I think what is likely to happen, um, and I hope this happens, is that it gets settled out of court, and there's a you know recognition from the RFU or an acknowledgement at least that there are long-term problems associated with repetitive uh, head injuries, and players, professional players, uh, are at greater risk of these things as a direct result of playing, um, and that some sort of slush fund is set up, um, uh, similar to the one that's just been announced in the. By the PFA, in fact, in football, which is a million pound fund, uh, that's clearly not enough. Um, and I suspect rugby will have to find a lot more money than that to um, ensure that the players that get beaten up on on their watch get looked after afterwards. And um, yeah, I think that that's that's what I think should happen. I think the RPA in England and indeed players' unions around the globe need to be massively stronger than they are need to be properly funded, independently funded, away from the unions that they they serve, the players are employed by, shouldn't be beholden to them, uh, or their union shouldn't be, that's for sure, uh, or the trade union. Um, so, yeah, th- I think that's, that's entirely possible. I don't think rugby union will collapse as a result of um, legal action. Um, I think that's completely unfair to sort of direct that threat at those brave enough to actually take that action um but i think it's clearly a massive challenge but this is also a challenge that should have been seen 12 or 13 years ago coming down the line and the fact that so much has been delayed and um around player welfare the volume of games the exposure to concussions is you know that in many ways the the big unions only have themselves to blame for that and in terms of making that match stay safe i i'm i know you've um You've mentioned this this particular incident in the book. I was at Twickenham last year, and Thomas Francis suffered a massive blow to the head. You know, subsequently, kind of unsurprisingly, was um, seen as a brain injury. However, he passed an HIA and was allowed to was allowed to play on. Mm. Do these kind of examples show that that assessment just isn't isn't accurate enough? Yeah, I mean, I think it also shows that the medics aren't following the protocols properly as well, because the Thomas Francis case should. I mean, again as George Smith in 2013 should never have undergone the HIA in the first place. He was demonstrating enough symptoms to be taken from the field and not undergo an HIA. Um, and it's that sort of misuse and of the HIA, which I know people were always concerned about. It came fairly soon off the back of the bloodgate scenario between, um, which is sort of famously uh, saw Harlequin's player have his mouth cut um, in order to fake a blood injury, um, and there was lots of concerns around the manipulation of the of the, the substitution rules. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think my own view is that the HIA is is better than nothing, um, but only if it's applied properly. Um, I think it has done a lot of good in terms of 
picking up data and giving people more clarity on the number of head injuries that have been suffered on the pitch, brain injuries. Um, but it's by far and away from being perfect. And it's certainly not as effective as I think you would have believed by um, some people within World Rugby and the RFU. Um, yeah. And yeah, obviously, you know, governing bodies, the World Rugby, the RFU, the WRU, these are all names that our listeners will be familiar with. Mm. Perhaps one less so is the, the concussion in sport group. And perhaps you could just explain a bit to our listeners the, the influence that this organisation has had over sport or had over yeah. sport. It's been massive, Jed, absolutely massive. As you rightly say, it's not a not a group that people are particularly aware of, but its influence is absolutely seismic. Um, and I sort of identified quite early on around 2013 that this is a collection of um, effectively senior doctors employed by sports governing bodies so paid directly by those by those governing bodies um and funded by them um who get together uh, it was a lot more shadowy back in those days but it's been around since the early 2000s um every four years and they reach a consensus statement between them as to uh, around the issue of concussion and um what I was taken by early in looking at them was just this sort of fairly definitive position that there was no causal link between repetitive head injuries and what's known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, which is the sort of elephant in the room, which hardly ever gets discussed uh, in the media, but is the reason why um, so many protocols and changes are being driven. Um, but yeah, they, they're a group of, of doctors essentially um and i challenged why that initially why they were being given so much um sway and why so many of the sports governing bodies notably rugby um were just falling into line with everything that they said essentially um and not pushing back on this issue of causality and um there was one individual paul mccrory who i write about extensively in the book um Sorry if I've jumped ahead of the question you were going to ask, but essentially um, I have my doubts about this guy almost immediately. Um, he'd received funding from a multitude of national governing bodies. Um, he'd worked with the RFU um, and consulted and was involved in something called the COG Sport uh, Test as well. Um, and I he was highly elusive highly unwilling to speak to the media but yet would be quoted in the media from time to time being overtly definitively stating that essentially chronic tra traumatic encephalopathy um was a essentially in his words a, a hoo-ha that was, they were jumping up and down about in the states and very much making a case to say concussion was a short-term issue and could be dealt with as such and wasn't a long-term risk and Lots of lot, if not the vast majority of governing bodies, um, fell into line with that, and that was their position as well. And essentially, around 2013, they were saying concussion isn't a long term risk, we and therefore, by extension, I read, therefore, you don't need to worry about it. And, um, that wasn't a position I agreed with. And then, yeah, another figure that I know you mentioned in the book as well is, is Dr. Rudy Castellani. And um, again, could you? Tell us a little bit about his relationship with World Rugby. 
Well, I was really surprised uh, because I do think World Rugby have taken a lot of significantly positive steps over the last decade or so, and I support quite a lot of what they've done. Um, But where I was just really disappointed and surprised and felt that they took a massive step backwards was by inviting Castellani to um, give one of the keynotes presentations at the recent, their most recent player welfare symposium. And Castellani is the guy that all the big leagues in America have, or several of the big leagues in America have relied upon to essentially debunk the idea that repetitive head injuries can present long, long-term long problems down the line. He's a self-confessed CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy denier. Um, and basically listening to him speak on that platform was to me like listening to Paul McCrory. And I think what, what as I outlined in the book, happened with Paul McCrory um, last year was that he was found guilty of, or found to have plagiarised a, a vast number of his supposed research studies into this issue. Um, his his reputation in medicine is now trashed, essentially. Plagiarising research studies is, is the number one sin for a researcher. And the guy who had the most influence in the world on the concussion conversation, who's a former um, editor of the British Journal of Medicine, Sports Medicine, um, is a fraud essentially, um, and that. But that has toxified and polluted so much of the conversation, and there's so much that we need to unpick. Um, and as I say, I, I felt that by introducing and allowing Castellani a platform, um, who was spouting all the same nonsense that McCrory used to spout, then it set the whole conversation back a very long way, and that was hugely disappointing. In terms of how the how we make the game safer, what what things would you like to see introduced into rugby, Sam, to to, to make it a, a safer game for everyone from from grassroots to elite level? Yeah, it's a great question, and I must reiterate, although it's ever so slightly frustrating that I feel the need to do this, that I do love rugby. I think I would encourage people to play. Um, I think it's a fantastic game that's been, as I said at the start, a massive part of my life and will continue to be. Um, But I do think in the professional game particularly, there needs to be even further changes. Um, And I wasn't involved with progressive rugby when it's set up. I've recently been invited to join the organisation as a member and I basically support pretty much everything they're calling for. Not absolutely everything, but the vast majority. And certainly the the idea that players should play fewer games in a season, around 25 would seem to most people be a sensible number for the top players to play the maximum amount of games. I've talked about radically reducing contact training, um, going back to a three-week mandatory stand-down, and also properly protecting those breaks between seasons and actually giving guys in in season breaks as well so i think what premier sorry what progressive rugby are doing and talking about is is it's common sense and there's lots of really really good rugby rugby people um in that organization ex players ex doctors current doctors current players and and those of us in the media who've covered this um and it's not a fringe organisation. They are a group of people um, who are very, very serious about rugby, um, have got a track record of living, breathing and being paid and making a profession within the, within the game. So 
this isn't a group of rugby haters. It's a group of rugby lovers who've seen that risk profile change and firmly believe that there needs to be a significant um, shift back towards skill um, evasion and reduction in the power-based game and just the number of hits that the guys are expected to to endure on a on a seasonal basis. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you there say, Sam, that you know that you are still a, a fan of rugby because I think, given everything that you've you've put into into this side of it, it could be very easy to see how that could you know that could that could be jaded. So it's it's mm. great to hear that as well. And um, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I've really. Um, uh, Again, apologies. I haven't had a chance to re- read all of the book yet, but I will be. I will be. Um, will be doing that for sure. Uh, if people want to get hold of a copy, how can they do? What's the best way to do it? Uh, well, you could come to our event, which is coming up, uh, our launch event on September the twenty eighth in uh, in Tisbury at uh, the stalls. So near between Salisbury and Shaftesbury, we're running a, an event which myself and Steve Thompson and Alex Popham are speaking at. Um, or you can just go on to Amazon or any good bookshop and, uh, and buy Concussed Sports Uncomfortable Truth. And um, yeah, I'd be uh, more but delighted to see you at, at one of our events or indeed visit concussed.media um, where there's a list of our events, some of the media that we've been attracting and, um, and the work that I've been doing. So uh, no, I'm hugely grateful to you, Jed, for inviting me on here to share your platform. And um, yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank well, no, th- thanks very much for, for joining us. And yeah, Alex has Alex has been on um, earlier in the year as well. And um, and and the the original co-founder of this uh, of this podcast, Dan, is um, is uh, is doing the bike the head head to um, head to change Leon bike ride. So um, so yeah, we're you know we're big supporters of what um, of what Alex and those guys are doing. And uh, yeah, as I say, it's um, yeah. It, but we uh, will be delighted to read the book, and, and obviously anyone who any one of our listeners who's, who's interested in, in this side of the game as well, I'm sure will find it equally as fascinating. So uh, yeah, thank thank you so much, Sam. My pleasure, Jed. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks. Podcast Network.